0: Welcome to the University of New South Wales Canberra Australian Naval History video and podcast series produced in partnership with the Naval Institute, the Naval Historical Society, Navy Sea Power Centre and the Submarine Institute. Thank you for joining us. For more information on this series please visit the UNSW Canberra Naval Studies Group website to find us. Simply google Navy Studies Group and UNSW Canberra. Ours will be the first website in the search results. We hope you enjoy the podcast and return for others in the series. I'm Greg Swindon, Senior Naval Historical Officer at the Sea Power Centre Australia. This video and podcast episodes discusses one of the most significant ships in the history of the Royal Australian Navy during World War II. This is the light cruiser HMO Sydney, the second ship to carry this illustrious name. Commissioned in the RAN in 1935, Her exploits in the Mediterranean in 1940 were to make her a household name following the action at the Battle of Cape Sparta, where she played a leading role in the destruction of the Italian cruiser Bartolomeo Colleoni, This is the first of two episodes that will track the Sydney's World War II service. The second episode will discuss her tragic loss in November 1941. To tell us about the fascinating story of HMO Sydney and her valuable World War II service, I have joining me Vice Admiral Peter Jones, of the Naval Studies Group, whose book Australian Argonauts discusses John Collins, a member of the first class to enter the RAN College and who commanded Sydney in the Mediterranean. Also joining us is Mr Wes Olson, who is the author of two books about the famous cruiser, HMO Sydney in Peace and War and Bitter Victory, the Death of HMO Sydney. Also John Perryman, the Navy's historian and Director of Strategic and Historical Studies at the Sea Power Centre Australia. John, leading off. Uh, what can you tell us about Ship Sydney and the men who served in her?
1: Well, as you said in your introduction, it's a very big story and, and starting with the ship is a great place to start. Um, HMS Sydney was a modified Leander class cruiser. She was one of three uh, purchased by the Royal Australian Navy in build from the, uh, from the Royal Navy. Um, originally, she was laid down as um, HMS Phaeton and whilst in build, she was renamed Sydney. Um, she was a fast, modern warship. She mounted eight six-inch guns, four four-inch guns, uh, eight 21-inch torpedoes, uh, torpedo tubes, carried in two quadruple mountings. So she was a, a very modern, uh, well-equipped ship and really just what the Royal Australian Navy needed in the lead up to what would be the second great conflict of the 20th century. The men who served in her, uh, most of whom were, were regulars at the, at the beginning of the war, um, they'd gone over and picked Sydney up in build. Uh, many of them had travelled over in HMO's Brisbane, which had been uh, given to the Brits in part payment for it, and they brought her back to Australia, where she enjoyed some years of, of peacetime uh, sailoring before the war commenced.
0: Yeah. Peter, her commanding officer, uh, John Collins, a uh, member of the first class of uh, 1913 at the Naval College, he was in command of Sydney at the beginning of the war. What, what was he like?
2: Okay, so, so John was one of the leading lights of uh, of that class, and John Collins was the commissioning executive officer or second in command of uh, of the cruiser, and uh, and so he was involved in um, the setting up the ship's company, the, the working up of the ship, and and then its delivery voyage to Australia, and really sort of helping set that culture that uh, that was in the ship at the. Uh, at the beginning of the war, though, he was actually the uh, acting chief of naval, uh, the assistant chief of naval staff. So he was a, a captain in Navy office, quite well placed to actually understand how the war was was actually progressing um, and played a, a pretty important part in the naval headquarters. Um, he was then, after doing a very good job there, then posted in command of, uh, of the Sydney. So when he came back, he really was going back to... A ship he knew very well many of the crew uh, on board were still the ones that had commissioned the ship all those years uh, previously um, when he joined he talked to them about uh, the importance of uh, of playing hard working hard mm-hmm. um, don't drift um, and to keep a smile on your face and so he really was um, uh, one of those captains who thought you needed a hard-working happy ship for one to be very effective. And um, he also was a gunnery specialist. Um, and in fact, he won the Edgerton Prize for the best uh, uh, officer, both in the Australian Navy and the, in the Royal Navy, in UK, Pass out that year in gunnery training. So he was very good at gunnery. And that was also an important aspect as the ship went uh, to the Mediterranean.
0: So he was the right man for the job. Absolutely. Right. Wes, what, what was Sydney doing uh, on the Australia Station before she departed for the Mediterranean?
3: Well, Sydney's primary role while on the Australia Station was trade protection. So uh, for the first 10 weeks of the war, she was based at Fremantle in Western Australia, tasked with patrolling shipping lanes, escorting selected ships, and uh, radar hunting. Um, Mid-December, she came back to a home port in Sydney for uh, her annual refit and then returned to the west in February 1940. Picked up again where she'd left off, but um, Collins had been informed while, while the ship was in the east coast that uh, to expect a, an overseas deployment early, mid 1940. His um, next big mission, I suppose, uh, was to help escort the first or well, second Australian troop convoy, US-2, was taking Australian troops to the Middle East. Sydney was part of the escort for that, and she was tasked to go as far as uh, Cocos Keeling Islands, then hand over to a French cruiser, then come back to Fremantle. And uh, Collins was under the understanding that uh, Sydney would take the next convoy, US-3, through to the Middle East. But um, two days out from Fremantle, his orders suddenly changed. He was told to turn around proceed to Colombo at best possible speed, and um, it was part of this this deployment happening much sooner than expected. Uh, at this stage, Italy looked like she was going to enter the war against Britain mm. and France, and the Admiralty was trying to get as many ships into the, into the threatened zone as possible, either into the Mediterranean fleet or into the Red Sea. Uh, Sydney got to Colombo. She then had orders to uh, to go into the Red Sea. Uh, looked like she was going to be joining Hobart there. But uh, on arrival at Aden, his orders changed again. Uh, Cunningham, uh, Commander-in-Chief of the Eastern Mediterranean Fleet, decided he wanted an Australian cruiser and he wanted Sydney.
0: Right. So John, Sydney arrives in the, uh, in the Mediterranean. Uh, what's happening there at that stage?
1: Sydney's arrival in the Mediterranean came at a time where the situation could not have been more precariously balanced. You've got to understand that uh, in late May the British Expeditionary Force had been forced off the beaches uh, of Dunkirk. Um, on the 10th of June uh, France surrendered and there was a great, great concern then about what would happen to the French warships. While Britain had France uh, still in the game in the Mediterranean, it had the forces, along with its allied ships, to maintain that balance of power in the Mediterranean. When France fell and the question mark was placed over, what would happen to the French ships? Would they be interned? Would the Germans get them? Would they remain in British ports? Where would they go? Would they take any further part in the war? The whole situation changed. The Italians had a vastly superior fleet in the Mediterranean and it must be remembered that the Mediterranean is quite a confined sea. Mm. Uh, I think on average it's about 500 nautical miles um, wide and it's you know if you average that out. and then you take into consideration Italy and how it comes down into the Mediterranean. It had its seaports there which it could uh, very very easily sustain. It could its ships could do sorties from Italy uh, and go back to them for repairs to re ammunition the British were far from home. So the great game that, that was to be played, the strategic game, was how Britain, uh, with the help of the Commonwealth navies, was going to uh, deal with the threat of the Italians coming into the war and the capitulation of the, Fran- of the French. Now that actually happens on the 22nd of June. So Sydney arrives and not long after that, 22nd of June, Italy comes into the war following the French surrender and you now have this this shift that everybody feared so sydney's contribution uh, and arrival on the scene could not have come uh, at a more timely period for admiral cunningham and she was assigned to the seventh cruiser squadron on arrival Um, cunningham's strategic view of the situation he understood that basically uh the line dividing the mediterranean was italy itself Mm -hmm. which actually well virtually cut in half the 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 british naval forces one in the western mediterranean one in the east so there were problems there to begin with and they had a very very uh modern versatile navy albeit an untested navy Uh, so you know it was a uh, situation of unknowns and the great game was about to to play out
0: yeah yes i see it was quite a, a a desperate situation at the time. And obviously Italy uh, was in, owned uh, Libya as well. So they, they had a, a foothold on the, uh, on the North African coast as well.
1: Well, this is it. And the, the great um, uh, challenge also was to deny Italy and the Axis forces the ability to use the Mediterranean to both resupply their forces in North Africa and get the resources from North Africa back to Italy and Germany to fight their war and, and those resources were precious oil tin rubber those sorts of things so strategically the mediterranean was very very important whoever commanded the the mediterranean would would hold the upper hand
0: so peter admiral cunningham abc as he's known to, to many of his uh, his men was in command of the, the british fleet in the uh, mediterranean what was he like who was he was he was he the right man for the job
2: He certainly was. He was very offensive minded, Uh Um, He had a very unusual career. He spent, for example, seven years in command of the the destroyer Scorpion in the lead up to Mm -hmm. and during most of World War (coughs) One. And um, he uh, took part in the Gallipoli campaign. And in fact, he provided uh, support during part of the Anzac landings. So he had um, and was involved when the Anzacs were being um, evacuated. So he had um, quite a good um, disposition towards Australians. And to, to follow Wes's point, I think that's one of the reasons why he was keen to get the Australian cruiser into the Mediterranean. Um, his approach was to imbue his commanding officers with that offensive spirit. He believed that, the, looking at the, the strategic situation as, um, as John has described, his best course of action was to, to go on the offensive, try and get that psychological um, superiority against the Italians, and to imbue into his commanding officers to seek battle whenever they could. Um, He also was uh, um, very much of the mind to encourage commanding officers to use their initiative. His orders sometimes could be very succinct. Uh, John Collins talks about going on a patrol and going to the flagship, the Warspite, and just getting a verbal... um, order of what he wanted to do, and that was it. Um, so that gave uh, commanding officers, if they had the right mind, um, a lot of scope to use their initiative and judgment at sea. And, um, and that was to work very well for John Collins and the Sydney. So what was the relationship <clears throat> between uh, Cunningham and Collins? So, um, so the other player, of course, was... So uh, Sydney was in the 7th Cruiser Squadron. Uh, so it was Rear Admiral uh, Tovey who was in command of that squadron. Uh, so that was John's immediate uh, boss, if you like. Um, he also was very offensive-minded, but um, but quite often the the Commander-in-Chief would talk direct to captains, particularly if they're going on on patrols by them by themselves or or taking the lead for a, uh, a particular sweep that. Um, he, so he had a number of sweeps with ships going out, um, looking, for, looking for trouble, as John mm-hmm. Collins talked about, um, and, and just to try and get that sort of uh, superiority and to gain control of, of the, that part of the Mediterranean. So it was a, a relationship which just grew as uh, Cunningham could see individual captains had the competence, drove the ships well and had that fighting spirit. And, uh, and as time got on, you could see that Collins was, uh, was getting that confidence. The other relationship which is not uh, often mentioned is Collins was a senior Australian. So there was the destroyer squadron there mm-hmm. as well, but he was a senior Australian on the spot. And, and so there were some things that he was able to achieve. For example, he was able to get um, um, an extra meat ration for Australian sailors. So they, they got double the amount of meat compared to, a, to a, a Royal Navy sailor. So it was things like that that uh, he had a direct link in with uh, Admiral Cunningham. And that sort of helped in that relationship.
0: Oh. Wes, uh, it's not long after Sydney's arrived, Italy's entered the war, and she goes on her first offensive action against Bardia in Libya. Uh, what, what happened
3: there? Uh, Bardia was a problem for Cunningham. Uh, when the Italians entered the war against Britain and France on the 11th of June, um, his fleet base at Alexandria came under, or became exposed to attack by the enemy's air, naval, and land forces. Um, we mentioned that the Italians held Libya. That's just across the border, basically. So the Italians had something like 250,000 troops in Libya. The Brits had 36,000 in Egypt. Alexandria was 250 miles away from the border, so they were the real threat to his fleet base. If the Italians decided to invade, there was very little to stop them. Um, Bardia was a fortified port and town very close to the frontier. It was the Italians' chief supply base for all their forces on the frontier. So by striking at Bardia, uh, Cunningham would effectively be disrupting any Italian invasion plan and disrupting their supply uh, channels. Mm -hmm. So um, he decided to attack it at dawn on the 21st of June. Um, Basically, he chose Orion, uh, Toby's flagship, Neptune, and Sydney, and uh, the French battleship Lorraine to do the bombardment. Um, They each had their own aircraft aloft for spotting. Sydney's got into trouble fairly early on. Um, Italian, well, what they thought were Italian fighters Mm -hmm, turned out mm -hmm. to be RAF Gladiators, mistook Sydney's biplane for an Italian aircraft and basically shot it up. It managed to, or the pilot, Flight Lieutenant uh, Tommy Price, managed to nurse that aircraft across the border back into friendly territory and uh, everyone got out alive. He subsequently got a, a distinguished flying cross for his effort. But Sydney was left to carry on with the bombardment by herself. Um, But this is something that the crew, ships company had been training for for nine months, 10 months. Uh, It was Mm -hmm. the first time they'd be firing uh, in action against a real enemy. And um, their excitement about going into action was sort of tempered by the fact, by the knowledge, that um, the Italians were defending Bardia with with batteries of six-inch and eight-inch naval guns. it turned out to be a bit of an anti-climax because the enemy batteries were silenced or failed to come into action. Mm-hmm. Uh, so Sydney's crew were able to just pin their ears back and and plaster their target. Uh, it was basically a military uh, barracks block. Orion was tasked with taking out the all-important water pumping station. And um, at the end of the exercise, they, um, they did what they were tasked to do and got away virtually scot-free. Um, but it was the first real test of, of Sydney's gunners, um, everything worked perfectly, Sydney got away more rounds than um, Orion and Neptune and um, they thought it was yeah, a good opening stand basically against the Italians.
0: So it sounds like you know, Collins being the gunnery officer had made sure that they were well trained for their, yeah, for yep. their action. Yeah. So John, just five days later after the attack on Bardia, the 7th Cruiser Squadron uh, encounters an Italian convoy. What happened in that action?
1: This was the action that led to the engagement with the destroyer, Espiro. And um, during that action, they they rumbled uh, an Italian destroyer force, uh, which was subsequently engaged. And this, to me, this is where the crew of Sydney really have uh, their first encounter with the face of naval battle, um, up close, Uh, much more up close than probably they anticipated. And I'd like to focus on the Aspiro in this because she's soon crippled by Sydney. And uh, Sydney's ordered to basically go back and finish her off. And the ship is there in um, uh, a state of almost extremist, but still defiantly firing away at Sydney uh, when she's gone back to try and, uh, you know, well, in in anticipation of taking on the survivors, to be frank. Mm -hmm. And this gallant little Italian destroyer is still full of fight. And there'd been a lot of questions raised about, you know, how willing or otherwise the Italians would be to actually get in the fight. And this gallant little ship, the Aspero, um, demonstrates that, that they were. Uh, it continues to fire at Sydney, and Collins is then compelled to, to put a full broadside into it, which ends proceedings. They then go on to um, rescue survivors. But I'll let Peter talk about that personal interaction, particularly in how it affected Collins.
2: Yeah. yes so um and this comes out in um both collins's recollections and also yeah. commander hilken who is the mm, commander the in his papers he talks about as john said both of them on the bridge talking about how they're going to uh, recover survivors and then um, the um the spiro then fires a torpedo and continues to fire until they silence her. But the, the takeaway for, for John Collins was that that was a near-run thing. They nearly got torpedoed um, and that they had to be very watchful about how they conduct business. Clearly, they're in, in, when um, they're operating against the Italian Navy, they'll see uh, people who operate in a very brave way and they, they've got a, a, a foe they must respect. But also the fact that they've got to husband the advantages that they have. So the advantages in that case were, had the firepower, so don't get too close. Um, and the thing that uh, comes a lot in, uh, in Sydney's service in the Mediterranean is they learn by each experience. And, uh, and as they, they go along, they just get better and better. But from the command perspective, he learnt there to just be, marshal what advantages you have, but be very watchful and just manage your risks carefully.
0: But I also believe that, you know, uh, Collins stayed behind um, and possibly risked his ship to, to more damage by actually rescuing survivors from Espiro. And even when it came to the time he had to leave, he left a boat behind, is that
2: correct? Yeah, that's true. And, uh, and uh, going back to Hilkin, Hilkin, before they left Australia, he, um, he had spoken to uh, a New Zealand cruiser who was in, involved in the um, Battle of River Plate, and and the and the commander there had come up with this uh, idea of fully provisioning with water and store and food and so on all the lifeboats. So if you were sunk, every lifeboat had all those provisions uh, for a, a long sea um, sea voyage back to to uh, to a port. Um, so Hilkin did that, and so when Collins decided that. It was too hot. the um, The risk he was posing for his ship for a submarine attack, or maybe from the Italian air force, was getting too great. As as it was nearing dusk, he he then left a cutter, um, and um, and in fact, seven of uh, the um, of the sailor, Italian sailors who were left in the water were able to get on board. And in fact, one of those sailors ended up emigrating to Australia after the war and set up electrical business. So. Um, but the reading the diary of some of the sailors, they thought that was a great thing, and it showed you know a, a good sense of humanity on the part of Collins to yeah. do that
0: yes we've we've destroyed you, but we've got a level of compassion mm. yeah. you know, as well yeah. where's the next action for for Sydney is the Battle of calabria and and you know, this is the first time for a century that uh, opposing fleets had met in the Mediterranean. So can you explain what happened there?
3: Yeah, this was a big one, Battle of Calabria. Um, it was the first real test of the ship's company. Um, it be the first time they were going to be exposed to anything like a full-on naval battle. And uh, also air attack, sustained air attack. Um, when Sydney sailed from Alexandria uh, on the night of the 7th of July with, with the battle fleet, um, no one had any idea. This was for a uh, convoy covering op- operation. They were heading off into uh, central Mediterranean, then on to uh, Malta to pick up two convoys. No one knew that the towns were already out there. They were engaged in a similar operation. They were, um, they'd sent out a, a, a major force of battleships, cruisers and destroyers to protect a, a troop and supply convoy going into Libya. So they set sail not knowing what was going to happen. Uh, on the 8th of July in the afternoon uh, British and Italian reconnaissance aircraft were up and they started spotting these different uh, ships out there and the different commanders suddenly realised there's something going on. Um, The reconnaissance reports were basically indicating large Italian warships were at sea and uh, Brits were doing the same. Cunningham realised he had a chance to to cut off this Italian fleet. He assumed it was running a convoy, protecting a convoy going to to Libya, and it would have to go home. And it had to go home to Toronto. And that was basically, uh, he was in a position to cut it off. The Italians were also keen for battle. Um, Admiral Campione, um, he was aware the British fleet was at sea. He deduced that it was heading towards Malta. So he was keen for a battle as well. Um, it came on the afternoon of the night. It um, initially started uh, with, a, with a cruiser action. Sydney was with um, the 7th Cruiser Squadron. It had been reduced by one because Gloucester had been bombed by an enemy aircraft uh, the previous day. So she was out of it. So Tovey only had four cruisers under his command, his own ship Orion, Sydney, Neptune and Liverpool. They saw the Italians. Um, Neptune was the first to realise that the fleet was there and she made that signal enemy battle fleet inside.
0: And that's the first time since the Napoleon first of yours, time I believe. First time
3: since Nelson's time, yeah. yeah. Um, and two Italian cruisers opened fire shortly afterwards. They were soon joined by another two, and then they were soon joined by another four. So within minutes basically, uh, Sydney and her three companions are under a massive assault you've got eight cruisers against four and things weren't going particularly well sydney was doing what she was being trained to do she's firing back but uh, each ship was taking on two and it was pretty unequal um the problem was their battle fleet the british battle fleet was 20 miles astern but cunningham realized what was in the offing and his flagship war was a little bit faster than the rest of his um his fleet he had another two battleships bringing up the rear so he decided to, to steam ahead, and he arrived in the nick of time. Uh, Warspite announced her presence to these Italian cruisers by a salvo of 15-inch shells. Nine more salvos, and the Italians had, had enough. They saw these massive columns of water rising up around their ships, and I thought, bugger this. And, um, so they withdrew under cover of smoke. There was basically then a pause, a 20-minute pause, while Campione got his battleships, his two battleships into position, and got his heavy cruisers into position. And then it started again. So you've you've got Warspite now slugging it out with two Italian battleships, uh, Giulio Cesar and uh, uh, And Cavour. And um, things weren't looking too good. Uh, Sydney and her three companions, they were now copping fire from heavy cruisers, eight-inch shells and um, at times Sydney was just disappearing in the spray from shell splashes and at one stage one of the British ships thought Sydney was gone, she just disappeared into this ball of water and they thought that's it, she's gone and she steamed out with her guns blazing and uh, everyone thought it was a miracle. The real miracle was about to happen. Uh, Warspite at a range of 13 miles got a hit on uh, uh, Julio Cesar and that did massive damage. These are huge shells and um, that battleship pulled out of the line. Campione was prepared to continue with Conti de Caffour, his uh, his flagship. He was quite prepared for his heavy cruisers to continue hammering uh, Tovey's four light cruisers but uh, then Malaya had slowly made up ground and she came into the equation.
0: That's another British battleship. That's another British battleship.
3: She was initially 20 miles astern but she'd managed to catch up and uh, once she started firing Campioni realised well this is not good it's two battleships against me and uh, in the meantime the carrier eagle had flown off a strike of swordfish and they came in and um, started attacking the Italian heavy cruisers so at this point the Italians was pretty much even but they'd taken a bit of a bit of a pasting uh, our cruisers had got away fairly lightly. They'd been plastered with shells, but no real damages had been sustained. But the Italians thought, no, this is it. We've had enough. So they withdrew under cover of smoke. They sent in their destroyers to lay a smoke screen, and mm-hmm. they scarped And um, basically, Sydney came out of that very well. She'd fired off something like 411 rounds of ammunition, came out virtually without a scratch. Um, everyone thought, well, this is it. We've survived our first Dinky Die Bloody Sea Battle, and um, they're all looking forward to heading home. Unfortunately, they still had to get to Malta. Then they still had to take the uh, the convoys back, and the Italians have been stirred into action by now. And uh, the Italian air force was keen to exact a bit of revenge and, and take a toll of the of the British fleet. And Sydney copped a bit of a pasting. She was at times singled out um, all the way back virtually to uh, Egyptian waters until RAF aircraft came to to drive off the bombers. But Sydney was a little bit handicapped. She only had single four-inch guns. Uh, The other British warships had double the number of Mm anti-aircraft guns. So she put up a brave fight and managed to beat off a number of attacks, but she fired off every single round of HE. At the attacking aircraft. In the end she was reduced to firing four-inch practice shells uh, to try and keep the bombers away. So as a first outing in a real battle Sydney came through with flying colours. She'd taken the brunt of the Italian light cruisers, the heavy cruisers, the Italian Air Force and she came home without a scratch. Um, she had no casualties. I think she had a signal hang- she'd, uh, shot away and that was about it. And um, that was where she earned her nickname, Lucky Sydney.
0: Very lucky. Very. Yeah. John, there's no rest for the wicked and you know, Sydney's back at sea uh, in the middle of July and that's where uh, on the 19th uh, her most famous action occurs. Can you explain
1: what that was? Certainly July 1940 was a period of uh, great excitement for HMAS Sydney and mm-hmm. on the 19th of July, yes, uh, we, the Battle of Cape Sparta. So, that operation was uh, it was a dis- it was to support a destroyer sweep uh, under the command of uh, Commander Nicholson. He had four destroyers: mm-hmm. Hyperion, Hero, Hasty, and Ilex. And Sydney was sent with her and another destroyer, the Havoc, mm-hmm. to cover that force. And essentially, the destroyer force was to conduct a patrol from east to west along the northern coast of Crete. Culminating at Cape Sparta, which is, is if you look at uh, you know a chart of, of the island of Crete, you'll see it's almost like a, a spur that, that at the mm, very... Juts out. Juts out, yeah. Mm. Anyway, um, the two forces were separate, so Nicholson and his four, four destroyers are doing their thing, uh, patrolling, and Sydney is elsewhere with havoc. Now, what John Collins does is he looks at the strategic and the tactical situation and, and uh, aligns himself that if on the um, western side of this beat by the destroyers they were to run into trouble, he would need to pre-position himself where he would be best placed to provide cover. So the two forces are quite separate. They're they're in communications, but not visual communications. It's it's Morse code by wireless. Mm -hmm. So on the morning of the 19th of July, uh, Nicholson's force encounters two Condottieri-class Italian cruisers off the sort of west north west coast of Crete at around about seven thirty in the morning. They send out an enemy contact report, uh, they're spotted at the same time by the Italians, they turn heel and start to run for it with the Italians uh, giving chase. Mm-hmm. So a little bit like uh, Wes explained in the previous battle you've now got these four destroyers uh, pretty well running for their lives, against two of the fastest ships, not just in the Italian Navy, but in the world. Mm. Um, in speed trials, the uh, Bartolomeo Colleone had, in fact, clocked something like 42 knots. That's pretty which fast. Which is a, a pretty good clip yeah. when you consider it. So they were two knots faster than these destroyers, easily, and they were overhauling them. So when Sydney received word that Nicholson was in contact with the enemy, he and Havoc shaped their course um, to, to intercept. And this is where I think um, Collins again comes to the fore in, in recognising the importance of preparing his men for the a battle that's about to commence. He, he works out that he's some 40 nautical miles distant, okay, and when he turns his ships he has time to send the men for breakfast. I understand mm. that not too many of them took that invitation, but <laughs> nevertheless, breakfast, mm. uh, hands to breakfast was piped mm. before they went to action stations. And at the time that they rendezvoused with Nicholson's destroyer force, uh, they could see the Giovanni della Bandanera and the Bartolomeo Collioni uh, quite on the horizon, giving these destroyers a pretty hot time. Um, they had maintained radio silence, so they didn't okay. tell Nicholson that they were closer than everyone had anticipated at that point they thought that sydney and um, havoc were much further away than what they were so you can imagine the concern that was in the minds of the destroyer men at that time this was a pretty you know they were in a desperate situation they were in a very desperate situation and then over the horizon uh who should come but sydney and havoc and sydney's arrival was announced with salvos being fired at these italian cruisers and they were caught pretty well unaware and that's when the battle of cape sparta really turns hot and turns into this this great chase
0: okay. Where's can you you know following on from what john's spoken about here can you then explain how that action unfolds
3: yeah basically well initially collins had no idea what he was up against he knew there was two cruisers who didn't know if they were light cruisers or heavy cruisers yeah. He didn't know if they were screening a larger force to the west of Crete. So by just charging in like he did, he was taking a a pretty big risk. But uh, he was prepared to take that risk. He'd spoken to uh, his commander, Hilkin, about it. And they agreed that if they charged headlong, there's a good chance the Italians would panic and run. And initially, they didn't. Um, uh, The two Italian ships were sighted off the starboard bow. moving from right to left, Um, the Gunnery Officer Singer was instructed to to aim for the first ship, Bandoneerang, and um, he got his first salvo away without the Italians realising what was going on, which was a great thing, element of surprise was vital. Mm -hmm. And it came as a great shock to the Italians because there was a bit of a sea mist fog to the north. They didn't know Sydney was there. All they could see was these gun flashes. And it took them nearly three minutes to get their act together and find out what was going on and return fire. And um, Singer, meanwhile, was just flinging salvos, rapid salvos. Uh, Initially, he was just using his two forward turrets. And um, once he got his line of length, so to speak, uh, he opened broadsides fire. And again, this was another surprise for the Italians because suddenly you've got another group of salvos coming in, a a larger salvo coming Mm. in. So he thinks he's up against two cruisers instead of one. And uh, he was prepared to continue the chase of the destroyers um, until he got hit. Mm. Uh, Sydney landed a six-inch shell on Bandanera, and um, that sort of changed his attitude abruptly. He took casualties. The damage wasn't severe. But uh, he thought, no, it's not for me. So he turned away. And at this point, Collins realized, we've got them. They're doing exactly what we hoped they'd do. They're turning. They turn behind smoke. And at this point, Nicholson, even without instructions, knew what he had to do. He swung his destroyers around, and he's charging full pelt back towards his, uh, his assailants. Cassadi, who's uh, in command of these two cruisers, his flagship is bound Uh, He realises, no, this is not for me. So he alters course again and starts running, fighting withdrawal. Mm -hmm. His his two ships are are flinging shells back. Uh, Initially, they could only see the flashes. So um, they, as soon as the mist cleared, and they could see that one of the larger ships was doing all the firing, which was Sydney, Uh, they were able to concentrate their fire on Sydney. So it's almost like, Calabria all over again. Sydney is being outgunned, but by this stage she's working like a well-oiled machine. The gunnery department have been perfecting their art all through um, the fighting against the Italians. They're getting better and better and better at their job. They're getting more accurate. They're having uh, less breakdowns in the machinery. Everyone knows what to do. So you have a classic chase. You've got two Italian cruisers running away from Sydney, and Sydney is just firing for all she's worth. The only problem is uh, the Italians were laying smoke, so every now and again the target would be obscured. So Sydney would have to switch targets, the Italians had the luxury of just concentrating their fire on Sydney. The inevitable happened, Sydney took a hit. Um, a shell exploded on a forward funnel, blew a massive hole in it, about three foot square, and. Everyone realised that if that shell had been fired just a fraction of a second sooner, that would have been the bridge gone. Your command structure would have been wiped out. Collins probably would have been killed. But Fortune favoured the bold, they pushed on, and a short time later, um, the gunnery control noticed that their target at this point, Collione, was slowing down. Unknown to them, they'd already scored a hit themselves. In fact, two hits. Um, she took a vital one in the uh, in the boiler room, it knocked out two boilers. Uh, shrapnel damaged the uh, condenser on the main engines in the forward uh, engine room. So basically, she's losing power and she's very soon dead in the water. Sydney um, continues to fire at Collioni as the the gap closes. Then she realises Collioni's ah, finished. I'll let the destroyers uh, take care of her. Collins continues with the chase, chasing Bandoniere and he eventually scores, Collins Singer eventually scores another hit on Bandoniere but that just doesn't do anything to slow her down. Casati is keen to get out of there and he's put the the pedal down and he's (laughs) gone, he's not coming back. Um, Colleone was to be abandoned to a fate. Mm. John, have you got
0: anything else to add to, to that action?
1: I think that uh, one of the interesting things about what Wes was saying is that um, the rate of fire that Sydney achieved during that action, mm. when they had uh, all four turrets bearing, they were getting away something like 64 rounds a minute, mm. which was which was a pretty decent mm. you know, rate of effort. And the other thing which uh, I think is interesting when you read some of the diaries of the men, um, here they are in the in thick of action, uh, like Wes very correctly pointed out, they didn't know whether these were 8-inch gun cruisers mm. or 6-inch gun cruisers. So this was a pretty bold thing that Sydney did, but really they had no choice. But for the young sailors in that ship, there were reports in the engine room, for example, of paint flakes being shaken loose in the engine room. And these young seamen, calmly going about their duties with brooms, and in the, in the midst of this action, they can't see what's going on. All they can hear is this, this commotion. And the chief engine room artificer observes a couple of his young seamen stokers quietly sweeping up the paint chips. And at that point, he observed that he had nothing to worry about about his ship's company. So you really start to see how well this crew is working together. <laughs> um, you know, they, they've been in action. They've been subject to air attack. There's the constant threat of mines, the constant threat of submarines. and uh, by this point, they really are a mature and dependable fighting machine. Yeah.
0: Peter, this is the the first really significant action in the in the Mediterranean where the, the Italians have been quite badly defeated. What was the what was the outcome of this action? Yeah,
2: it, it was the first major warship loss when the Coligny was sunk. Um, and in the diary of the Italian Foreign Minister, who is was um, the brother-in-law of uh, Mussolini, he makes the point that. Uh, the Mussolini was depressed that day after news of the engagement. Um, not so much because of the loss, but he felt that the Italian Navy had not fought well that day. Mm. Um, so it had a psychological um, impact on the Italians, certainly. And um, and it also had, a, a, in some ways, an even bigger psychological impact in the, in the, um, the Allied fleet. Um, the Mediterranean fleet were buoyed by that news of of the um, of the sinking, not only because of just the loss but the fact that really a, a smaller force had been able to um, engage these two cruisers and and drive them off. Um, and I think also it's, it shows that whole mentality piece um, following off John's point. Uh, Sydney went into that action having fired about two thousand rounds of six inch in previous engagements. Mm-hmm. The two Italian ships had not fought an, an enemy action before, mm. so for them this was their first time, um, and um, and you saw that inexperience also in terms of the lookout in, in the uh, in the Italian flagship. They misidentified uh, the havoc as being another cruiser. So they mm. f- Casati thought he was up against two cruisers um, when when they a- appeared in that sort of gloom. Um, um, but it was actually only just Sydney and a destroyer, so that coloured Cassati's sort of view. But it it, it it really was they weren't as battle-hardened and and uh, offensively minded as Sydney, and that so the impact, immediate impact in the Italians was um, after almost like a draw, if you like, in terms of Calabria, mm-hmm. then to have this loss that played heavily. Um, and, and then equally on the Mediterranean fleet, they were really buoyed by the outcome.
1: I think the other thing to remember also is um, on the Italian side, many of her sailors were conscripts. Mm-hmm. So there's a big delta there between you know, well-trained sailors and in Sydney's case, well-trained uh, veterans now, if you like, against people who've been pressed into service with little training. Yes, they had good ships. They were modern, they were fast. But when it comes down to the crew and the capability, when they're conscripts, as it, as many of the Italians were, not all of them, but a large percentage, that's also a factor to take into consideration. Right.
0: So leading on from that, John, what what was the the feeling back in Australia when when news of this uh, this victory came through?
1: Well, I mean, for the second time in Australia's history, a, a, a ship named Sydney had dispatched an enemy mm. cruiser, mm. and um, I think that it's important to bring this up now, uh, particularly for the next episode also, mm. that. Australia back then was a much smaller place with a smaller population and most towns and cities throughout Australia knew someone or had someone serving in HMAS Sydney or elsewhere in the Navy. So the adventures of these ships overseas are followed with great interest. So when this news comes back to Australia that Collins and the Sydney have in fact uh, been in this, this action with not one but two Italian cruisers, um, it's, it's received jubilantly, and it's very much seen as beginning to add to this uh, myth-like shroud that uh, surrounds Sydney's story henceforth. Um, as Wes brought up, the lucky ship, right, the ship that during her time in the Mediterranean was subject to something like 88 actions and came through unscathed with the exception of the hit on the funnel mm. and a minor injury to one of her men. So great jubilation um, and uh, great plans put in place for the time when she came home.
3: It was also important for, for Britain. The war was going very badly. France had fallen uh, and Britain itself was under attack. The, the Luftwaffe were in the middle of um, their air assault on Britain. So this was the victory that everyone was praying for and it was delivered in space. It was just a bolt out of the blue and uh, Even Sydney's uh, crew, they were pretty excited about it. They were disappointed. If it had been a Royal Navy ship they were on, they would have been issued with a a ration of rum, splice the main brace. But but they didn't have that luxury, so Collins still thought of his boys and announced after the action that they would get an extra ration of a half an ounce of butter for their dinner.
1: (laughs) It worked strategically also because um, that action uh, prevented and, and did not see the Italians venture into that part of the Mediterranean afterwards for a very, very long time. So in, in effect, it was a, you know, an effective example of sea denial, if you like.
0: Peter, I'll just ask a the question there that um, when uh, Collins came back to, uh, to Alexandria and he had to uh, go and see Admiral Cunningham uh, and ex- explain the action, I think he, um, he was uh,
2: chastised slightly for being out of position yeah, uh, so um, so when they had a tumultuous welcome in Alexandria Harbour, where all the ships lined and sheared the ship, um, and e- Egyptians and 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 soldiers from the quayside also joined in. Um, Cunningham came on board, um, and then uh, and, and then, you know, essentially said he was like surprised to see you know you you were there. Where did you get your orders from? And he and Colin said, well, from Providence, and and Cunningham then said, well, you can continue to take your orders from provenance um, but I think that showed that Cunningham's approach of giving commanding officers scope and uh, and latitude and to imbue that offensive spirit really paid off.
0: Mm. Whereas the Italians were out of out of the fight for a little while but uh, they came back again and uh, Sydney went off on the, some actions in uh, Scarpanto you know, I think in September can you lead us into that act- activity?
3: Yeah, the Italian Navy was now rarely to be seen, but the Italian Air Force was still uh, a problem. Um, They had a number of airfields in the Dodecanese, and these were the aircraft responsible for the almost nightly air raids on Alexandria on his fleet when it was at sea, and Cunningham had 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 enough. Um, He'd just had his fleet reinforced by the aircraft carrier Carrier Illustrious, so um, he decided to take advantage of his um, extra Air capability by launching attacks on these airfields in the Dodecanese. Sydney and uh, destroyer Ilex, they were tasked with uh, going in towards Scarpanto and uh, destroying uh, an airfield there at uh, Macri Yalo, I hope the pronunciation's right. Um, it was to be a dawn attack. The only problem is the airfield was on a peninsula that jutted out from the island. At the base of that peninsula was a defended harbour. So Collins was a little bit concerned about trying to conduct his bombardment while steaming in and then drawing the crabs from the harbour defences. So he decided to go the other way. He uh, decided on a surprise attack. Uh, He would go in towards the harbour first and then do the bombardment on the way out. And to uh, preserve the element of surprise, he Mm -hmm. disguised Sydney to make it look more like a Condottieri class cruiser. Uh, Amongst the modifications, he had a timber and canvas frame put on the forward funnel so it looked like the, uh, the uptake of an uh, mm-hmm. Italian cruiser, a boiler uptake. And this worked brilliantly. His plan, the disguise worked brilliantly. He got in and was just about to commence his uh, gun run uh, when some Italian motor torpedo boats came out to, to investigate this, what they thought was a friendly warship arriving unannounced. Um, Collins had great faith in the destroyer captain and uh, he allowed Ilex to, to do the deed on these motor torpedo boats. Meanwhile, he did bombardment, got off all his rounds, uh, got away scot-free, as did Ilex. The only problem came when he had to rejoin the fleet. He'd forgotten to take down his disguise. <laughs> and uh, he was initially mistaken for an Italian uh, cruiser, and it was a near-run thing. He was almost uh, shot up by his own people. Uh, when Cunningham heard of this, he um, he must have had a laugh because he signalled uh, Sydney, "Well done, you are a stormy petrel." <laughs> mm. um, yeah. So yeah, by this stage, I think Cunningham loved Sydney and he loved yep. Collins. He knew he had a, a good skipper and a good warship that could do virtually anything he asked of it.
0: Okay. So Peter Cunningham sends Sydney in harm's way yet again, up into the uh, into uh,
2: the Adriatic. Yes. Yeah, so to set the scene here, um, there were two things going on in the war. Um, one was that the, um, the Italians had um, uh, were engaged in the invasion of Greece. They were using Albania as a, as a staging point for those operations. Um, the roads in Albania uh, weren't good, um, so a lot of the, uh, the supplies for the, the operation were going from sea from the east coast of Italy, particularly the port of Brindisi, Across to Albania, um, and so Cunningham decided to do two things. The main part of his plan was, in fact, the to use Illustrious. Now he had this modern carrier that, um, that was talked about to do a strike on the main uh, Italian fleet base at Taranto. So this was the first time that a, a carrier had been used to engage, um, you know, the, a battle fleet in harbour. Um, so that was going to happen. And at the same time that night. Um, uh, Pridham Whipple, who'd replaced Toby in charge of the 7th Cruiser Squadron, he took Orion, Ajax, Sydney, two destroyers, New and Mohawk, up into the Otranto Strait, looking for, as Colin said on, on the broadcast that night, looking for trouble to tell <laughs> his sailors what was going to happen, um, but essentially looking for one of these convoys going across. Um, they... Th- uh, um, so they didn't precisely know whether there'd be a convoy there, um, and equally the convoy that they saw uh, which was four merchant ships coming back from albania empty um, with a, an armed merchant cruiser the ram three as the lead escort and an old world war one torpedo boat destroyer the nicola Frambrise, um, as the escort they were unexpecting a an attack because they were so far north mm-hmm. uh, north of the main italian naval base so they it was going to be a bit of a surprise when they in fact contact came into contact with one another so the two forces in the middle of the night uh, uh, came into contact and the cruisers set upon the um the convoy the Fembrisi, um which was commanded by lieutenant commander bambini um, really um, was very aggressive in its defense of the convoy Um, started engaging the cruisers, firing torpedoes. In complete contrast, the Ram 3 continued west and and was firing a couple of rounds from its stern guns to get away. But uh, the torpedo boat really tried to um, defend the the merchantman, but all four ships were sunk. Um, In fact, Sydney engaged all four. Um, It was a real melee as the Cruisers fired guns and torpedoes and sank these ships. The torpedo boat destroyer was then left by itself with to recover the uh, the merchantman uh, crew. Um, the cruisers then uh, cleared north, uh, cleared south, I should say. Um, Sydney uh, had a torpedo fired against it and and missed. So once again, uh, that luck held out. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and indeed, um, the commanding officer of the, um, the Bat destroyer won the gold, gold medal of valour, like the equivalent of the Italian VC, for his efforts in, in um, defending the convoy. But Sydney did extremely well in terms of that action, sinking um, or having a major part in sinking those four merchant ships.
0: It does show that Sydney was up against <coughs> a, a dedicated foe at times.
2: Yeah, that's right. And, um, and certainly that's the point. And post the deployment, Collins makes that point time again about the, the valour of his opponents. Mm-hmm.
0: So, John, uh, Sydney uh, leaves the Mediterranean in, in January 1941 after uh, nearly eight months away, uh, heads home to Australia. How would you sum up her, her time in that theatre?
1: Well, I think, as, as you've heard today, that um, uh, she accounted for herself exceptionally well. Um, She went over there with uh, uh, a well-trained but not a battle-hardened crew. Uh, They adapted very, very well to the situation that they were faced with. They integrated exceptionally well with the Royal Navy um, and and gave a wonderful account of themselves in some pretty major actions. Um, I think it is worth uh, commending the Italians. Uh, They weren't a foe to be... Uh, taken lightly, Um, and it was one of those campaigns, the Mediterranean campaigns, that started, you started to see this jointery coming into Mm -hmm. effect as well, where particularly when it comes to the air cover. um, I think that the British were fortunate to have organic air cover from their carriers, Mm -hmm. and that was vital uh, to this campaign. But it wasn't just an ad hoc thing. The whole campaign uh, in the Mediterranean was very, very carefully managed from a strategic output from a joint perspective. So we re- it's one of those really good cases where we actually start to see um, the, the Navy Army and Air Force and organic air forces come together and, and work well together to achieve the aim, which was to, to gain sea control of the Mediterranean. Now, that didn't happen you know, when Sydney left. This, this struggle in the Mediterranean goes on and on. Mm-hmm. But I think that uh, as far as Sydney's contribution is concerned, um, when those men came home and, and were greeted and marched down George Street, um, they could you know, quite happily hold their heads high.
0: Right. Peter, have you got anything else to, to add to uh, Sydney's I'd just say that
2: uh, if you look at uh, Australia's naval history, this was probably the most successful deployment by a ship um, in a theatre of war.
0: Where's any last thoughts on the, on Sydney in the Mediterranean, noting you've written two books extensively on, on her history?
3: Um, Sydney was lucky. She, um, she escaped from that, that theater with no casualties. She had one man who died of illness. Um, three broke down with their nerves, uh, but no, no deaths in battle. The ship came out relatively unscathed, no serious damage to speak of. Um, a lot of people put that down to Collins's ship handling, mm-hmm. uh, others put it down to the quality of the ship itself that had been built, and the men themselves and how they operated it. But a lot of the, the lower ranks also put their faith in their cat, the Black <laughs> Cat Mitty. Um, she'd joined the <laughs> ship very early on, was like an early warning system for air raids, and uh, they were determined that this Black Cat was going to come home with them. It had got them all the way through the med, and they were determined to bring that cat home, and they did.
0: Gentlemen, thank you very much for uh, coming along today. Um, Sadly, that's all we have time for. Um, My thanks to John, Peter, and Wes for sparing the time to talk about HMAS Sydney and her illustrious career in the Mediterranean. Uh, And thank you for joining us.